Father, thank you for this new day of life. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for being a God who pursues us in love, who's not willing that any of us should be lost, who's waiting patiently. Lord, we can't wait for you to come back, and yet we also are longing to be agents of salvation in the world around us. We pray that you transform our hearts this morning to love more deeply. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We walked into the room. It was our first meeting with the theology majors. We were at a new school, Pacific Union College, and as we looked around the room, I began sizing up each of these future pastors. I was changing degrees for the first time, and I wasn't sure if I was going to become a pastor, but I remember looking around the room and looking at each person and thought, that guy? I don't think he'll be a pastor. That girl? I don't know, maybe. Definitely not that person. And I was going around the room evaluating, and I remember later on, Leah and I were talking, and we were talking about which person we thought would, would be most likely to get a call, to be the next one to be hired as a pastor when, when we graduated from school. And there was one person in particular. He seemed really organized. He had his thoughts together. He was really articulate when he would share things. And obviously, he had a real heart for Jesus, a real spiritual way about him. And I thought, of anybody, that would be the guy who would get a call. He would be a fantastic pastor. You know, we've been looking at the first angel's message. I want to invite you to look there with me again at Revelation chapter 14. And we're actually moving beyond the first angel today. We're moving to the second angel. Now, those of you who aren't familiar with the three angels' messages, these are the messages that Revelation gives us at the very center of the book that lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 14 depicts that as the harvest where Jesus is coming back. And so these three messages are a universal message that goes to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people right before Jesus comes back. We've been looking at the first angel's message, which is the everlasting gospel that goes to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And then we, actually, let's just, let's just go over that again. Verse, uh, it's the first angel comes with a loud voice saying, Fear God, this is verse 7, and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Last week we talked about how this reveals to us that God is calling us to worship like a dog. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You can catch that on our YouTube channel from last week. But God is actually calling us to worship like a dog. Verse 8 goes on to say this. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, here's the amazing thing. A lot of people summarize the three angels' messages as the last message of mercy. And then you get into the second angel's message and the third angel's message, and you're thinking, mercy, where's the mercy? I need mercy here. But here is the beautiful thing. You notice how the second angel starts. It says this in verse 8, and another angel, what? Another angel followed. You see, this is not a distinctive message. It's not a separate message from the first angel that came. It's tied together. It's hinging upon the first message. And what was the first message? The everlasting gospel. Right? So we have the everlasting gospel as what precipitates Babylon 
falling. Is this making sense? So there is good news that is sent, and the good news is not... Good advice. Thank you. Right? The good news is not good advice. It's about what Jesus has already completed for us. Just like he has completed creation, he's completed salvation, and this is why we rest on the seventh-day Sabbath in the completion of what he has done for us. This is the everlasting good news, and the good news leads to the fall of Babylon. But what is Babylon? What is Babylon anyway? Well, all books of the Bible meet and end in the book of Revelation. And so where, really where we need to go is to the very first place where we see Babylon. Go back to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, this is just after this worldwide flood event where uh, humanity has, has turned to violence and, and creation has spiraled out of control and there is a flood that comes. And after the flood, what does God send as a promise to Noah? A rainbow. And what was it a, a sign of? It was his covenant with mankind not to flood the earth again. He said, I'm not going to allow a flood to come on the planet like this again. This is the sign This is the promise that you can trust me. And then we get to chapter 11. And we find people that are are told to go out across the earth. This is part of the covenant. And they are all coming together in the land of Shinar in one particular plane. And they have one particular purpose. And we pick up that purpose in verse 3. It says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And this is the beginning of Babel. It goes on to tell us that it was later called the Tower of Babel. The, the Babel meaning the gate of the gods, or gate of God, or Confusion is another, another uh, interpretation of the word Babel. But here you have, what are they trying to do? They're trying to build a tower to reach where? They're trying to find their way up to God. They're trying to do whatever they can to, to make an architectural structure that will provide them with salvation. Another flood? No problem. We've got a tower that can see us through. And I wonder if while they were constructing that tower, they might have occasionally said, oh, look at that rainbow over there. Isn't that beautiful? We have such a good view of that from our tower. Hello? What about the goodness of God? What about his promise? You don't need a tower. What about his instruction to go and fill the earth? But instead, what are they trying to do? They're trying to make, it says, a name for themselves. The purpose of that tower was self exaltation to raise themselves up to get higher to get to the heavens to get to god this is the very root and heart of what babylon is it is self-exaltation it is the the idea that we can save ourselves that we can contribute something to what god is doing in our lives and the beautiful thing is god's response look at how god responds in verse 5 But the Lord came down. Just look at that. They're saying, we're going to build ourselves up. We're going to find God. We're going up. God says, huh? Oh. And he comes down. It repeats that again in verse 7. Come, let us go down. God comes down 
when we are exalting ourselves, his response to our Babylon-type ideas is to come down, to come close, to come near to us. And we'll always have to have God come down to us because there is no way that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to get close to God. So this Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now, here we don't see a great city except for that it's talking about this tower, but can you think of another place that it calls Babylon a great city? Or an individual who called Babylon a great city? Well, if you go to Daniel chapter 4, you find what we call Neo-Babylon, where you have Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. And in Daniel, uh, it's a sad story. What, what Babylon becomes to represent throughout salvation history, throughout the Bible, is God's enemies, the God's people's enemy, the ones who would come and who would ransack the temple. And we find that this city uh, that was built by Nebuchadnezzar has exactly, Nebuchadnezzar has exactly the same idea as the people on the tower in the, in the plain uh, of Shinar, which Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that Babylon was built in the plain of Shinar. So Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30 says this, The king spoke, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking, Is not this great Babylon, this great city, is not this great Babylon, what does he say, that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. I've done it. It's all about me. In the very next verse, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And in that moment, his fingernails began to grow. His hair began to grow. And he was let out into the field. He went crazy and was eating grass for seven years. Babylon is fallen. Self-exaltation leads to a fall. Or as Proverbs says it, pride goes before destruction. And it's no wonder that when you go to Isaiah chapter 14 and we, we see this proverb about the, the, the king of Babylon, this would have been an encouraging proverb because Babylon was seen as this fierce enemy who was always persecuting God's people. And Isaiah gives this proverb about Babylon Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. And then it begins to go into what's going to happen to Babylon. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, talking about what's going to happen to Babylon, in the middle of this proverb, talking about the king of Babylon, it reveals who's behind Every single religion and institution on this planet that seeks self-exaltation. In verse 12, continuing with the proverb about the king of Babylon, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are fallen, Lucifer. You who, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. You remember that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it's Babylon who gives of the wine of their fornication to all the nations, and all the nations drink of that wine. That's awesome. We get a little aerial show while we're here at church, huh? That's, 
that's the good thing about being ex- outside. There's fun things, fun things to look at. Well, verse 13 goes on to say this, talking about what was in the heart of Lucifer that eventually leads to his downfall. Catch this. Don't miss this. As this is the same exact thing that we found on the plain of Shinar with those building the Tower of Babel, the same exact thing that we find in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. And if I'm honest, it's the same thing that I was born with in my own heart. It says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And ultimately, Lucifer here, as he's saying, I'm going to go up, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to be like the Most High. He's accusing the Most High of self-exaltation. He's accusing God himself of being the one who puffs himself up, who seeks to exalt himself. And this is the original lie that we find Lucifer telling. But the good news is this. The everlasting gospel is exactly that. Everlasting good news. And Babylon falls. It does not last. This principle of self-exaltation will not last. Though you and I were born with it. And is it true that we're born with that? I'll tell you. I have two twin little girls who are incredible. They are loving girls. And I think that they might be the sweetest girls who ever graced the face of this planet. But here's the thing. You will be amazed to see the different times where I know that they'll be in danger to try to do something themselves. For a while, it was climbing the stairs. And every time we get to the the stairs, they'd say, self, self, stairs, self, self. I'm going to do the stairs myself. There's this wall that when we walk into Templeton that, that I would take them up on and I'd run along the wall with them. And then they say, self, self, and they don't want to hold a hand. They want to cross the street on their own. They want to, there's poles that will help them hop, little short poles that will help them hop from pole to pole. They want to do everything by themselves. And you and I were born with that craving for self-exaltation. And the problem is that it always leads to separation and to problems in relationships. Just look at what happens throughout the Bible history. From the time when Adam and Eve believed that lie that, hey, God is holding something back from you. He's not wanting you to be exalted, so you need to grasp for something more. You will be like God if you'll only take this fruit. And they took that fruit. What's the first thing that you find them doing when God comes into the garden? After they hide from God? They're pointing the finger at each other. Well, well, Eve made me eat that fruit, and immediately there's marital conflict going on. They're unable to get along. That always follows Babylon. Babylon, the Tower of Babel, is the tower that the languages were confused and people were separated and dispersed across the planet. And you find all of this division coming out of the spirit of Babylon. And I found that again and again in my own life, that the tendency is when I want to exalt myself, I begin to want to pull others down in the process. You know, Desire of Ages says something fascinating. Desire of Ages, page 35, talking about this spirit of Babylon. It says, The principle that man can save himself by his own works 
lays at the foundation of every heathen religion. This is pretty amazing to think about because there, there's some Wikipedia estimates about 4,200 religions. And of those 4,200 religions, it says every one of those, the foundation of those is that we can save ourselves. There is only one way of salvation. There is Babylon, which is confusion, which is everywhere, which multiplies, which says there is something that you can do to change who God is and his attitude towards you in order to get him to save you. But there's only one way, only one truth, and only one life, and that is found in Jesus Christ. There's only one name by which we can save, be saved, and that is by the God who humbles himself, who comes down to be close to us who can't stand the thought of being without you who wants you to be with him who like we talked about last week is inclusive who has his arms open wide who gathers the outcasts and pulls them in faith and works page 18 says it this way there is not a point that needs to be dealt upon more earnestly or repeated more frequently or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing more important that you get than this because this is what the end time crisis is all about. It's about whether you think that you can accomplish something for your salvation or whether you're trusting completely in the merits of Jesus Christ. Babylon or the everlasting gospel? The good news is that selfless love will continue on while Babylon will fall. Self-exaltation will fail in the end. You know, I've been thinking about what is it in relationships that creates the strife and the, the, the constant uh, difficulties that we see. You know, I think about my friend that I I became friends with over over time uh, there as we were in school. We went to school for for two years together. And at the end of the two years, we graduated and turned out that we both got hired to work together on the same team. And I was sort of like his supervisor. This was that guy that I thought would be, you know, this this amazing pastor. He had amazing characteristics. I, I saw those from a distance. And then I got closer to him and I, I was around him constantly and, and I began to suddenly look at the different things in his life and I thought, well, why is he like this and why does he do that? And I began to, to criticize this thing and that thing and why does he say this and why doesn't he do that and why did he say this to Leah? And the list went on and on and I began to treat him the way that I felt about him and I began to tear him down. And though I might have been right possibly about some of those things, I was completely wrong in the way that I treated him. And I realized something. I realized that the root of the problems that I have in my relationships are based upon my idea of self-exaltation. My watching out and guarding for my reputation, for who I am, for, for what I think is right, guarding me is why I get into the problems that I get into in any of my relationships. It's pretty fascinating to read um, in a Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, page 276. It says, actually, sorry, no, this is from uh, Review and Herald, uh, May 12, 1896. It says, there is a great 
great need of taking self in hand when we find ourselves watching to make capital on the missteps of a brother or sister or a friend. Although we do not acknowledge that the object of defaming another is to exalt self, self exaltation is behind the practice of noting the shortcomings of others. Do you know what Lucifer is called in Revelation chapter 12 when it says he's been cast down? It says the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. The one who accused God, the one who accuses you, the one who accuses me, he's been cast down. And yet so often I participate in the spirit of Babylon in tearing other people down and defending myself. And here's the thing. Revelation chapter 18 says, come out of Babylon, my people, but I think we need something else. We need Babylon to come out of his people. We need Babylon to be taken out of our hearts before we can ever have a message that the world will care to hear. Do they know that we love them the way that Jesus loved them? It goes on to say the remedy for unlikeness to Christ is to live humbly, to keep looking unto Jesus in prayerful watchfulness until changed into the likeness of his beautiful character. Just keep looking to Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep prayerfully connecting with Jesus, communing with Jesus, and you will be transformed into that same image. You know, there's a beautiful picture of of what this overcoming of Babylon, what leads to Babylon's fall in the very story of Daniel. You think about Daniel. Here he is at 15, 16 years of age, marched across a desert by this king that has come and raided his city, gone into the temple and taken out the vessels of his god. And taken him captive, taken him away from his family, made him likely a eunuch so that he could never get married, never have a family. And he gets to Babylon. And you think about the hatred that could be in his heart. You think about how he could be constantly looking to criticize and to pull Nebuchadnezzar down. But that's not what you find Daniel doing. Now, I believe that we see a little transformation taking place in the life of Daniel. Let's look at this quickly in Daniel chapter 2. Because you remember that that Nebuchadnezzar and and Babylon, another attribute of this self-exaltation is eventually it leads to the use of force. And you see this preeminently displayed in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream and he can't remember the dream, so what does he do? He calls in the wise men, tell me my dream. They can't tell him the dream, so he says, well, I'm going to kill you all. You, you have the problem, not me. It's not my mind that's the problem. It's you that has the problem. This is the way that Babylon works. Everybody else has the problem. But you know what I found out? Everywhere I go, there I am. <laughs> and so the, the problems in my life, they somehow they follow me everywhere. Have you ever noticed that, man, there's the same kind of troublesome people in my life everywhere. How often do we hold up the mirror and wonder, maybe it's me. Maybe I am the problem that needs fixing first. Jesus said it this way. He said, why do you go to try to take the moat, the the speck of dust out of your brother's eye when you haven't taken the plank out of your own eye? Well, 
Arioch comes to Daniel to tell him, okay, so here's the deal. You are going to be killed. And this is Daniel's response. He says, verse 15 of Daniel chapter 2, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation of the dream. Just give, just give me a little bit of time. And this is what he does with this time. It's a beautiful thing. He understands a powerful principle in transformation of life situations and of our own hearts, and that is prayer. Because look at what he does. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, his friends. He's, he goes and tells his best friends that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. So they go and they say, let's pray about this. We need to pray like we have never prayed before. But, but notice what, when he's telling them this, notice what he's worried about. He says that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secrets so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Did you catch that? He says, so, so, so let's, let's pray so that the four of us don't die along with all these other wise men over here. Let's, let's pray about our needs, about what we want. And Daniel is a little bit possibly self-focused here. And notice, I believe, what the transformation that takes place. He goes and they pray together and God reveals this to him and he blesses God for revealing it to him. And after that night of prayer, that earnest time in prayer, what takes place in our hearts as we connect with an infinite God of love is not that it got, brings God down to us. Sometimes we have this picture of prayer that it's like a vending machine and we'll get God to be better than he wants to be already. The most important thing that can happen in prayer is that my heart will be changed by coming in contact with a God of infinite love. In fact, that reminds me here of uh, what I was going to read from, from uh, Mind, Character, and Personality. Actually, this is in Thoughts of, from the Mount of Blessings, page 86. It says this, The heathen looked upon their prayers as having in themselves merit to atone for sin. Hence, the longer the prayer, the greater the merit. If they could become holy by their own efforts, they would have something in themselves in which to rejoice. Some ground for boasting. This is what Babylon is all about, self-exaltation. If I pray the right prayer, if I pray enough, if I pray long enough, then that will work. This idea of prayer is an outworking of the principle of self-expiation, which lies at the foundation of all systems of false religion. This is an, another way of saying what we just read earlier, that it's, every false religious system is based on the idea that we can save ourselves. Self-expiation, that somehow I can make an atonement for my wrongs against God through saying the right words and doing the right things. But here's the thing. God has already come down to us. And as we go to Him in prayer, we come to recognize this infinite heart of love and our hearts are transformed by that time in prayer. Prayer is so incredibly valuable, not because it changes God, but because it changes us. Because it changes the circumstances in the world around us. And so look at the difference. Before going to pray, what was he going to pray for? What did he want his three friends to pray with him about? That they would be saved 
and not die along with the wise men. Don't let us die like all the wise men. Now notice verse 4. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said this to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now he suddenly cares about all of the wise men. He wants all of them to be saved. And this should be the result of our secret time in prayer with God. This should be the result of all connection with God. It should lead us to care about every human being on the planet. This is the opposite of Babylon. To have a heart of love for the world around us. And that heart of love just kept growing. When he goes before the king at this point, <coughs> he tells him, no man, there is absolutely no man who could ever tell you this dream. But there is a God in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's teaching him the opposite of Babylon. The opposite of Babylon is to recognize there is no merit whatsoever in any human being. But there is merit in this infinite God of love, the uncreated one. And he tells him the dream. And the dream is that Babylon, although it's the head of gold, gold that is long-lasting, it's not going to last forever. But in the end, there's going to come a stone cut out without hands, not by human instrument who will destroy and set up, destroy the kingdoms of this earth and eventually set up an everlasting kingdom. Well, the next chapter, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He sets up a statue that's all of gold. He says, Babylon will last forever. Again, self Exaltation is at the heart of what Babylon is all about. And self-exaltation will fail. Pride will lead to destruction in my life, in your life, in every system on this planet. And then chapter 4 comes. And in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar receives this dream. And in this dream, he sees this, this beautiful tree that is nourishing all of the, the planet but he doesn't understand what this dream means. And so he calls Daniel in. And you remember, Daniel has been wronged by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has been taken captive. He's been made a eunuch. All of these things have happened to Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 19, when Daniel is summoned in to give interpretation of the dream, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar, being Daniel, answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Here he is talking to what was the worst enemy of Israel. And he says, man, I wish that this dream wasn't about you. I wish that it was for your enemies because I love you. The guy that made him a eunuch, the guy that took him away from his family, marched him across the desert, the one that's kept him captive. He says, I wish that this was about your enemies. And friends, this is what leads to the fall of Babylon. It is selfless love. This is what has won the great controversy. As Lucifer said, I'm going to go higher. I will make myself like the Most High. God is selfish and I will be selfish too. I'm going to exalt myself. Jesus took on the form of human flesh. He lived a perfect life. And then we see that the temptation that was given to him again and again on the cross in, it, in Matthew chapter 27 was to do the opposite 
of what he came to do was to participate in what Babylon is all about, to save ourselves. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39, Jesus is there on the cross. He has above him the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. And those who passed by blasphemed, wagging their heads. So this time it's just the passerbys. It's the people that are off in the distance. They're passing by and they're wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, I was reading that this week and I was thinking, man, couldn't Jesus at least have lined them out? I would have. I would have told him, look, that's what I'm doing right now. The cross is the way in which the temple is destroyed and rebuilt. Don't you understand I was talking about my body? I would have let them know the truth. <laughs> Jesus said nothing. Nothing except for Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And, and it just keeps coming closer to him. It says in verse 41, Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Save yourself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Now if he will save him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. It just keeps coming closer. First it's the passerbys, then it's the chief priests, and then it's the people right next to him on the cross, all of them saying, Jesus, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And this is exactly what humanity has ingrained in them. Since the fall, our go-to is I've got to do something to save myself. But the truth is, it is finished in Christ. And that is why we rest on the seventh-day Sabbath. And that is why the Sabbath is the opposite, the, the antidote to Babylon. Because the Sabbath reminds us that we rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that love overcomes. There, as all of them are accusing them, and Luke goes on to say that even the soldiers were saying, save yourself. Then, as one of the thieves is again saying, save yourself, the other thief says, hang on a second. Something is missing here. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? Friends, selfless love does win in the end. Selfless love will continue on. It is the only unending, eternal commodity on this planet and in the universe. Love will never end. Everything else will come to an end, but love never fails. Paul wrote it this way. He said, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so God calls us in every relationship to look to Jesus until we can treat them not with a Babylonian heart, with a heart that is focused on self, that pulls the people down, that tears people down and Friends, I'm not talking to you so much as I'm talking to myself because so often in the closest relationships is where I am quickest to criticize and to condemn. But what God is calling me to is to grace, to mercy, to what is the very essence of who he is, to selfless love. As we close today, I just want to invite you to listen to this song, 
uncreated one. And think about the God of the universe who came down. He came down for you. And so how can you and I do anything except for to come down for those around us? To get off of our horse and to serve and to love and to put others first and to stop accusing, to stop criticizing, to stop thinking that by tearing others down will somehow help our own self out. May we look to the uncreated one who gave his life on the cross and be filled with his love. In Philippians 2, Paul gives us this incredible challenge. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for who you are. You come down to us. Though we are grasping to go higher, though we're guarding self, though we're tearing others down, you come down close to us and you humbly lay yourself down for us. Lord God, please, would you give us hearts like yours? Would you give us a mind like yours? Would you take Babylon out of us? Please deliver us by this everlasting good news of what has been done for us in Christ. May we trust the promise, unlike the tower builders who were looking for their own salvation. Lord, may we look to you as our absolute everything, and may that looking to you lead us to build each other up, to love each other to the very end. And Father, I pray that I wouldn't walk out of here thinking that it's anybody else who needed this message, but me. Pray that for each of us, that we wouldn't go out of here thinking about how somebody needs to understand this, but that we would recognize that the primary problem is within our own hearts. Oh God, would you change us from the inside out? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.